Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today at the New York CX Forum is Chip Heath, professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business and best-selling author of Switch and co-author of the upcoming book, The Power Moments, which is being released in October. Welcome, Chip. Thank you. So, Chip, just to start, this work looks at defining moments and argues a point that is different than the way most people think and the way most organizations work. And we'll get into what that means, but what got you started? What did you see or not see that got you curious to go look at this problem? Well, I write books with my brother, Dan, and we felt like that defining moments are so important in our lives and in our memories, and yet we don't pay much attention to crafting those moments. So there's research that's been done on what people remember from college, and essentially 40% of your memories come from the first six weeks of freshman year. And, you know, junior year is kind of a blur. It, it has nothing, nothing that registers. And so there are these whole swaths of our experience that just disappear from our minds. And yet we don't work hard enough to do the things that, that are going to stay there. So vacations are th- something that looms large in our minds, but we don't spend as much time practicing vacations and creating vacations that we should. We probably don't spend as much time making memories with our kids as we should. And it certainly happens in customer experience in, in organizations. It seems like there's a trend in the podcast we've run that, that sort of reminds us that human beings are human beings. Yeah. And, they're, and they're emotional human beings. And so that organizations have poorly recognized that yeah, and sort of gotten sterile in their thinking. And, and it sort of reminds me that what you've done is sort of taking a natural human thing and brought it into business logic. That's right. And in the kind of books that we like writing are books that have applications both for your personal life and your business life. So we wrote a book on sticky communication and people, people have used that to talk to their their colleagues at work, they use it to talk to their kids at home, and that's the kind of thing that we like to see. But with defining moments, we find four basic principles that apply for defining moments of all kinds, whether they're in a personal life or in a business life. And so, for example, one, one moment is an elevation moment. So that's what we experience when we have a great glass of champagne or a, a birthday cupcake with, you know, all the, the frosting and the, the candle flames. And, and, and there, there are moments that happen in our personal lives that are like that. But the question is, could we build in more sensory experience to a, a business context? And a kind of funny, quirky example of this is I've asked a lot of audiences, how many people have an empty box in your home from an Apple product? And in about half the crowd inevitably has one of those boxes. And it's just such a visceral experience. I wouldn't have thought about a box being a sensory experience, but the suction that occurs on that box when you start trying to open it up is, is such a phenomenal thing that people can't bear to throw that thing away. And, and I think that's an example of Steve Jobs being clever enough to recognize a sensory experience that most of us wouldn't have thought about, even though we think about it in contexts like creating parties or creating good environments for our home. And, and somehow that logic doesn't transfer to the workplace. Right. It, it, it strikes me that when you use that example and connect it to defining moments, that's a very n- narrow but powerful sensory experience, which is someone has to think at that, at, at that narrow a level to say there's an experience of what the box sounds like and feels like upon opening that will retain a memory that makes me sort of have, have a higher affinity towards Apple products and any Apple experience I may have. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where defining moments is, is a useful phrase because people have thought about that a lot. But 
lot of the defining moments are actually small but telling things. And so they don't have to be grand, you know, crisis of character and defining ourselves in the crucible of history. They have to be something that makes you stand out. And brands should be thinking about that all the time. What are your defining moments for a brand? They may be subtle things. They may be in the scheme of life, not a big thing, but they're really important for the brand and the identity of that brand. Well, I think one of the things that we could maybe touch on is this notion that people aren't wired to think of those defining moments, that it's more that that we're wired to want to fill the pothole or the experience mm-hmm. that is not ideal or poor in some cases. So can you talk a little bit about the thinking or, or maybe the, the mind shift that has to happen? Yeah, so, so there's actually a lot of psychology uh, – research around the question of how people deal with positive and negative information. It turns out, you know, if you hold up two pictures side by side and over here is, you know, a good scene and over here is a bad scene, people spend more time just naturally gazing at the bad scene than the good scene. Or if you ask a sports fan after a weekend of sporting events, how did your teams do this weekend? Sports fan will spend more time analyzing, assessing about the games that their teams lost than analyzing and obsessing about the games that their teams won. And so it's a natural tendency to focus on the negative. But when that comes into organizations, what it means is, you know, frankly, I think, I think Six Sigma is the wrong discipline for most of us most of the time. You know, if we're not creating microprocessors, trying to achieve 3.4 defects per million trials is probably, is probably low-hanging fruit was picked long before we get to Six Sigma quality. Uh, and, and yet our minds naturally gravitate there. And I think what that ends up doing is organizations spend a lot of time, like you're saying, focusing on potholes as opposed to the pits. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's something that's negative enough that it's, you know, one out of 10 or a two out of 10, we, we ought to probably fix that. And, and yet organizationally, we spend so much time focused on the little problems as opposed to getting the big peak experiences right. I think that's a misallocation of resources. So, you know, in that context of the allocation resources, I mean, one of the facets of solving problems is there, there's a higher level of certainty as to what the problem is and therefore what the return can be. Yeah. And so you'll see teams focus more of their attention on that problem because it's a higher level of certainty. It's much easier to put together a business case. And more to the point, it's probably more believable by the executive receiving the business case because they, they have data that tells them about the nature of the problem. So it's almost like an act of courage or something that's sort of out of context to think of something that's additive. That is, that is not a problem. The financials aren't clear at first blush. And so there's a bit of suspended belief that if I invest over here, there's a return on it. Yeah, I think that's, and that's what leads to a phenomenon that I've, I've documented in consumer experience uh, workshops and conferences over the last couple of years. I ask people, how much, did your, how much time does your organization spend to fix pain points, you know? And, and focused on taking negative experiences, whether they're the really extreme ones, the pits, or it could be just potholes. And how much time does your organization spend on the positive side of thinking about creating great experiences or taking people that are kind of neutral and moving them up the curve from a 5 out of 10 to a 7 out of 10 to a 9 out of 10? And the most common answer and the median answer is we spend 80% of our time on problems. We spend 20% of our time thinking upside. Mm-hmm. And, and I think all the things that you just reeled off are, are good parts of that. So it starts with the psychology of neg- focusing on the negative, but then it's enhanced by the organizational things of saying, do you have data and is there, is there a reliable problem there and you know, what's the return on investment? So I guess the question, Chip, is how 
does the organization learn of the existing behavior and how does the organization undo that existing behavior? Because it is so wired at the human level and wired at the organizational level. What we do in the book is we make the case that these positive moments matter. And, and hopefully we're going to give you know, support and encouragement to the people who are trying to make them. But to, to take that into an organization and overcome this predisposition that we have for the negative, I think it's very difficult and it's going to need some clear political thinking as in addition to the, the solutions thinking of you know, creating the positive moments. And so, so I think that's something that still needs to be resolved. But you had uh, some data that you presented earlier today. So you talked about the time allocation, but then there was also some figures, some monetary values that you were applying to, um, you know, focusing on the bad experiences or making those good experiences better. Yeah, these these are striking numbers. Um, so you, you all at Forrester have a, a CX index product that, that you've built out models of revenue for people have certain responses on the survey, how much how much they spend with the company going forward. And so what we did is we looked at across 16 different industries for which you had a great revenue model, and it ranges from airlines and hotels to PCs to wireless and TV service provider to overnight package delivery. But in every industry, we asked the following question. What if you could take everyone that had a negative experience, that was negative on the emotion scale about their most recent service experience, and we could eliminate those problems completely, move everybody up to neutral. Versus, suppose we took everybody that's already from neutral to mildly positive and make them wildly positive. And you won't be surprised that every notch of emotion that you go up on the scale, people spend more money with you because they're happier with you. Mm-hmm. But w- what's interesting is for every dollar you would gain by solving all the problems, you would gain $9 if you could take all the neutral and mildly positive people and make them wildly positive. But I was shocked by the magnitude of that. So Chip, one of the challenges I would see is that that fixing potholes, again, going back to the concept of certainty, is there is a a moment in a journey that is certainly creating a problem. Yeah. But identifying one that has the potential for upside or identifying a new kind of experience has less certainty. In some cases, it really depends on someone in the field showing a moment of sort of brilliant emotional intelligence. Yeah. And doing something that can be scaled later. And the example that you gave on stage at the at the CX forum today was about on Southwest with the funny introductions. If you walk through, that'd be great. Yeah. So, so every airline does the the FAA safety speech with the you know buckling your safety belt and what happens when oxygen masks drop. And Southwest, at some point, somebody started doing funny versions of that, and and it's become institutionalized in the culture at this point, which. If you walk into the corporate headquarters, there are these placards in the shape of clouds, and they have the best jokes from the funny flight safety announcement. So, so one might be, um, there may be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are only six ways to leave this Boeing 737 jet. And so they'll do that one. Or my, my absolute favorite is, um, you should fix your oxygen mask before taking care of your child. If you're traveling with more than one child, you may have to consider which one has the greater potential. Yeah, that one made me nervous listening to for fear that I'd be last in line. <laughs> so so what, what's remarkable about this is at some point, some flight attendant did that and got an overwhelming response. And then other people started picking it up. And at this point, it's now become so so institutionalized that they're on the placards in the, in the lunchroom. But still, they're only being done in like one and a half percent of flights. 
And what was interesting is the analytics group at Southwest had done elaborate work on on problems, on thinking about flight delays and what that implication that has for future customer expenditures and revenues. Um, but what they never done until I asked them is take that pervasive part of Southwest culture, flight safety announcements, and say, what's the implication of hearing one of those on your future willingness to take flights? And it turns out there was a significant effect that everyone in a plane that heard a funny flight safety announcement ended up on average taking a half a flight more of Southwest relative to what they would have taken with a similar route. You know, they didn't hear the funny, funny announcement. And what's the implication of that? Well, it turns out given the millions of customers that Southwest works with, if you just doubled from 1.5% of all flights to 3% of all flights, funny flight safety announcements, it's not... It's not boring anybody because they're only going to encounter them every once in a while. But the implication of that 1.5% increase was $138 million. Wow. And it's just a stunning effect. And it's one that they hadn't thought about as an organization. I mean, they had that as a part of their culture. It was part of the routines. But they never priced it out. And the price is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a material impact on the stock price from doing that because the – it, it drops straight into profits because, you know, you, you only have to do an hour of training, takes people to the corporate right. cafeteria and say, you know, read the, the placards and, right. you know, come up with a version of this. I think that sort of just describes the, the challenge, which is you have people or human beings who are naturally disposed to solving problems, organizations right. naturally disposed to prioritizing problems. Yep. And yet you have this example with Southwest that is so original and so bespoke, meaning it happened on an airplane at one time and, and then sort of caught fire enough to be in 1.5% of the flights. Yeah. So the, it, it creates this challenge of how do I codify that? How do I, how do I know, how do I scale that so that I, I can both, I can unearth those little moments that probably are happening now, but just in such an underscale and under the radars kind of way. Yeah. I, I think the principle that I find compelling there is, is actually one that Dan and I discovered in our book uh, on creating change. And that is many people that are able to craft change focus not on the problems, but they focus on what we call the bright spots. Mm-hmm. And so they look at where success is already happening. And, and I think that's the, the trick with, for example, the Southwest thing, is that they were savvy enough to take whatever flight attendant started and did the first one of those and the crowd reaction to that and say, we had to do this again. And it's become such a part of the culture that they now have the placards in the, the lunchroom. That's when you know that something has been noticed as a moment and systematically planned. But we don't do that very often. Right. So, Chip, the Southwest example that you've described is really hitting on is this culture piece, right? That they're predisposed to celebrating this this moment that flight attendant had the emotional intelligence to to joke about to the, joke the about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like such a boring thing. Let's yeah, jazz it up a little bit, right? Now it's celebrated within their headquarters. But it seems like that's the minority of organizations. So how can most organizations accommodate something like that? Because it's so organic. Yeah, I, I think I think we miss opportunities to do this all the time. And one of the things that Dan and I hope will come out of people reading this book is you start to spot the opportunities for things. You know, mm-hmm. something, you know, one of our core principles is that elevated sensory experiences, that fun moments are, are some of the most memorable moments we have. And so if you have those spotting glasses on, Maybe you could spot that and yeah. say, this is one of those things that we ought to institutionalize. Or we find that moments of connection are really important. And so maybe if you have your spotting glasses on, you can spot that moments of connections are important. But I think the broader issue that you're raising is, is just 
if we think about all the things that make bureaucracy beautiful, so bureaucracy was a technological innovation in its time. And Max Weber, one of the famous, most famous sociologists that you have to read, you know, in every intro sociology course, he he wrote about bureaucracy as a tremendous boon to humanity. So he wasn't he wasn't thinking about bureaucracy. Right. He's thinking, oh, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is great because it's the opposite of nepotism. Mm. Bureaucracy is great because it's the opposite of whim. You know, you you plan out procedures and rules and you have reasons for allocating resources in certain ways and to certain people. And so bureaucracy was a wonderful solution to family-run organizations or nepotistic political organizations. It's it's a great solution to certain problems. But in our common culture now, what it does is because it's routines and procedures, it drives away variation. Well, some variation is good variation. And and in this case, you want to adopt the funny flight safety announcement when you see it working, um, but, but your bureaucracy is going to pull in the other direction. So, and you brought up a couple of points, and there's four elements to, and, and, you, and you talked about spotting glasses. You brought up elevation, insight, pride, and connection in the presentation today. Yeah. And I wonder if you just walk through very quickly what those are, because I think it's, from an audience standpoint, it's, they are likely to be the recipients of these ideas, not the originator of those ideas. Can you just walk through those four elements? Yeah, so number one is elevation. So moments of, of, of extreme sensory experience. So sitting at the national park and looking over the beauty of the landscape or the, the fireworks show or the, the birthday cupcake that has, you know, it's got sugar, fat, and flame. And so it's, it's a perfect, you know, little sensory burst of, uh, of energy. And so moments of elevation end up in our photographs, on our fridge doors, in, in our scrapbooks, in our Facebook feeds. Um, moments of connection are also probably the most common thing that winds up in all those places is pictures of people that we love mm-hmm. and p- pictures of people that we've worked with or gone to school with or been in teams with. And so moments of connection tend to be uh, extraordinary impact in defining moments. And then the final two that we found were moments of mastery. You know, so that, that pose that athletes have where they've got their hands thrust in the air and their chest puffs out, uh, that's, that's a powerful moment because we've mastered a skill, we've mastered a situation, and we have our, we have our organizational equivalents of that. You know, getting promoted to a manager position is, you know, your, your, your mastery moment. Um, and, and then the final principle is insight. Moments of insight are the aha moments that, you know, this is the wrong job for me, or, you know, that's the person I want to marry, or uh, industry-level things. Gordon Moore came up with Moore's Law, you know, 40 years ago, and it's it's been an insight that has guided the evolution of Silicon Valley and, and investments in technology for years. It's that magical epiphany that sort of becomes a business rule going that's forward. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so we find that those elements come up over and over again, when people talk about their experience in the workplace, you know, defining moments in my career have some of those characteristics. Defining moments in customer experience have some of those characteristics. When we have a really great vacation or really great service encounter, they apply in our in our homes. Um, you know, birthday parties are classic combination of connection and elevation. Mm-hmm. But you think, you know, what if what if you added one of the other ones that we don't commonly do, like insight? You know, wouldn't it be cool if you had one insight? that you wrote down every year on your birthday. And I would, I would be very curious and also probably horrified to read the insights that captured my year as a 13-year-old or a 21-year-old. <laughs> but it would be interesting to go back and read that document. Uh, and so, so one, of the, one of the things that we argue in the book is that some of these things evolve naturally. and We have cultural routines and procedures that take advantage of some. So the birthday routine has connection and elevation. 
but you can almost always make an event better by adding one of the other two. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. We John Paget spoke today as well from uh, Carnival Corporation, and and he really talked about expanding the view of what it means to have a vacation, yeah. and using the Internet of Things to create experiences before you get on the ship, a a ship level experience that's just fundamentally different and personalized and anticipatory. And then importantly, to your point on recall, which is to take those emotions and have them be able to be recalled and replayed to create a, a second sensory and almost mm-hmm. a, trying to re-anticipate or re-energize yourself about going on a cruise line again. And there's a science that, you know, we, we spoke with James McQuivy on this as well, which is sort of the science of how the brain works and understanding the power of that recall is now entering into experience design, which is mm-hmm. how do I find those little pockets of great experience from a customer standpoint and be able to have them sort of call them back out to yeah, bring them towards an affinity and spend. It seems like there's a growing body that's moving from the scientific realm into the, oh no, this is a monetary plan game. You know, this is a this is a financial business case kind yeah. of thing. There's some organizations that have been onto this for a long time, but, but I think most of us don't don't think about managing those aspects of customer experience. Yeah. I think for some, it's a bridge too far to take the science of emotion, to take the, the humanizing things that you've described and actually see them fitted into the corporate world and to see them fitted into experience design and, and fitted into a sort of a, a very hard-nosed prioritization of what experiences or what defining moments matter more than others because of their well, financial well, impact. Which is crazy because, you know, if, if we were just able to take the normal things that we do in day-to-day life and apply them in a corporate setting, we'd be way better off. I mean, you know, think of that moment when you go into a hotel room after a tough day's travel and the perky person at the desk says, oh, how was your trip today? And you say, eh, it wasn't so good, right? Now pause there and think about if you walked into a friend's house and you'd just gotten off a plane and you said, eh, it wasn't so good. The friend would immediately say, let me pour you a glass of wine. Let me pour you a shot of whiskey. You know, they would immediately react to that. What does the person in the hotel desk do? Give you a key, make you go away. Well, they, they, they first say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then they spend five minutes doing emails or whatever it is that they do at the terminal. You know, they're typing away and they're not talking to you and you don't know what they're doing. Well, it's, it's not a personalized experience. It's not a personalized yeah. experience. But it's not a human experience. Well, right. Yeah. Well, the fact is they started out half personalized <laughs> because they've been taught to say, how was your travel day? Right. <laughs> But they were completely led to shut off the part of their brain that if, if a friend said that, they would respond in some way. Yeah. And so imagine the difference of a hotel that actually took care of that and had a, you know, a pot of tea and a bottle of wine. And depending on the preference of the person said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that here, you know, have, have a cup of hot tea on me or, you know, bring out the wine bottle and pour it out and say, you, you go sit over there. I'll bring you your key when I finish the, the reservation process. That would be a human Thing that taps into everything that we know. And I think we'd be better off in most cases taking what we know about building defining moments in, in birthdays and celebrations and weddings and parties and applied it to our corporate life as opposed to leaving all that stuff in our personal life and never thinking about those things in the context of customer experience. Right. One of the things that strikes me that customer experience has unearthed is an organization desires control. Yeah. It desires repetition and be able to predict outcomes. And so that sometimes manifests itself in scripts. Yeah. And so the front line of the business is really the design of that is to be very predictable. Mm-hmm. But in your example, 
I mean, they could predict that people coming to the desk are going to come either coming in in a good mood in a good place mm-hmm. or they've had a hard day. But I think part of this is, you know, you use a Southwest example, which is empowering the front line is a, is a rare moment yeah. and giving them true flexibility in the example of the wine or whiskey or whatever it might be, giving them actually different kinds of tools. Yeah. I mean, that is truly original. That is from a corporate standpoint, that is for some companies fundamentally uncomfortable because they see it as unpredictable, lack yeah. of control. And they're giving people that they're, they're trying to train and create repetition around the freedom of thought and the freedom of, of, of making decisions in the front line. Well, which, which I, th- I go back to thinking that's really ironic because we're actually better in our personal lives at dealing with things than we are in our corporate lives. Tommy Bahamas, I, I heard that one of the people in sh- that work with that organization in its early days, and this is, for, for those of you that haven't run into it, it's, it's evidently a wildly profitable combination of clothing store and restaurant, which is not a combination I would have thought of before. But they, about they, the they, start, they yeah. started they started selling just, uh, I think it, they started with the, the clothing. Right. And it was designed as kind of a surf, you know, beach lifestyle thing. And then they added the restaurant and they found that having the two together were, was a credible synergy because the restaurants were so popular that people were queued up and they would shop in the clothing store and then, you know, the clothing store drove people. But anyway, uh, they described their orientation for their customer interaction people, the waiters and waitresses. Here was their employee orientation. They said, have you ever had um, had an experience where you went over to somebody's house and you felt really welcomed and, and, and like they were happy that you were there? And everybody says, yeah, I've had that experience. They say, have, have you ever had an experience where you hosted a party and you, you knew at the end of the evening people had had a good time? Yeah, I've had that experience. This concludes our orientation to customer service. <laughs> And, and I love the brilliant, brilliant. brilliant yeah. simplicity of that. Yeah. Is like those are the resources that we ought to be drawing on, and yet, and yet we're not. So, Chip, I want to turn back to one of the key points here because I don't want to lose the financial power of what this conversation is because you know, there are things like jokes in the wall with Southwest and the example mm-hmm. of Tumby Bahamas, but underneath this sits a very powerful number, which is 9x. So if I understand or allow the spotting glasses to, to look at and appreciate the different peak moments that are out there that I can scale um, versus if I go sort of seek out and fill potholes, I'll get a 9x revenue return. So what does it all mean to an executive listening? Well, in saying customer experience professionals, that's that's CFO level money. You know, if if you could do anything in an organization that would increase your revenues by a factor of nine, you know, that's that's C-suite level stuff. And yet a lot of the people trying to do customer experience are buried down in the organization without without the power that they need to have to, to take advantage of this 9x mm-hmm. power. And so, you know, when, when in your podcast, people are listening at the C-suite level. They need to understand that customer experience is a bigger payoff than acquisitions. It's bigger than entering new markets. It's bigger than introducing new technology. 9x is there just for reallocating the way you're doing things from looking at potholes to looking at what's going right and, and leveraging that. I mean, there is no easier way to make money in the world in that 9x return. Chip, we absolutely appreciate you joining us today. It was incredibly interesting. Yeah, great presentation today at CX New York and just a terrific conversation. Thank you. Thanks. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.